Hi, everyone. This is On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. My name is Laura Brush, and I'm a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're excited to share an interview we recorded with Bridget Burns and Amelia Reyes. Bridget Burns is the director of the Women's Environment and Development Organization, an NGO that works to ensure that women's rights are at the heart of global and national policies, programs, and practices. Emilia Reyes is the coordinator of gender policies and budgets at Equidad de Janeiro, or Gender Equity, a Mexican civil society organization that promotes gender equality through the development and incorporation of public policy proposals with a gender approach. Bridget and Amelia visited Yale to share their thoughts on gender equality and international climate change policy in advance of this year's UN Conference of Parties meeting in Poland. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, So first, can you describe the work that you do and the role you've played in incorporating gender and women's issues uh, into international climate change agreements and negotiations? So um, my name is Bridget Burns, and the the work that the Women's Environment and Development Organization does in a whole host of policies, but particularly within the climate negotiations, we take up the role that we have as active observers to the negotiations themselves. Um, We have been part of several really important alliances, such as the Global Gender and Climate Alliance, uh, which was a collective of NGOs and uh, UN agencies, intergovernmental organizations. Uh, And then also we are one of the uh, founding members of what's called the Women and Gender Constituency, which is women's rights and gender organizations who have looked at the climate policy space and seen it as a potential space to integrate policy language on gender, human rights, et cetera. And so <clears throat> I guess the be- the basic way to explain what we do is that we, we forward plan where we think the negotiations are going and set up a, a list of entry points and areas where we think gender should be and could be integrated. And an example of that is looking to see technical bodies that exist on adaptation or technology in areas where we know we have the data and the research that there's a clear link to gender, whether it's in relation to water ecosystems, and then looking at their policy documents and seeing if gender has been integrated or if it's if it's gender blind. And I would say up until 2010, although there had been certain language put in, it was really, you know, the groups that were engaging in this process in the lead up to Copenhagen saw this opportunity to really integrate key language on gender into the text. Uh, And that really started a a process of advocacy, capacity building, what are the linkages? What could the language be? Um, How would that language be impactful when it comes to implementation? And so from that point, really working actively from before COP15, around 2007, uh, till today, we, we do, and myself as an organization, we follow the process, we go to every meeting, we read every piece of text, we look at language, we build alliances among civil society, but also with um, negotiators and parties who we know this is an interest for, and we work together to both develop and then integrate language into the text. Hi, I'm Emilia Reyes. I work in a feminist Mexican organization. And what we do is to promote legal, programmatic, and budgetary frameworks for gender equality, human rights, and sustainable development. And in my work, um, I have a twofold role. One is to train governments and institutions to promote um, 
the integration of gender equality into their programs or their norms. And in that sense, we've been trying to get in touch with all the sectors that are not necessarily considered linked to gender equality, such as infrastructure or energy um, and water and sanitation, waste management. And um, in, the, in that sense, when we are trying to work in international negotiations is how the legal frameworks or international frameworks at the global level are impacting as well the national instruments that governments may have to advance on this agenda. So this is why we've been engaging in several processes uh, since the foundation of my organization, like the Commission of Status of Women or the Commission on Population and Development. And in the in the past 10 years, we've been very strongly engaged in the processes leading to the Sustainable Development Agenda, including the, agenda, the 2030 Agenda, the Paris Agreement, Habitat, the Sendai Program on Disaster Risk Reduction, and Financing for Development and also in the regional instruments like the Montevideo Consensus and its um, methodology for implementation, because we know that the more we help advance in the language in those instruments, we are giving more tools to the governments to implement that. At the same time, the other dimension that I have is we are definitely part of the feminist movement, so we engage with the feminist movement and we try to translate the priorities that we in a that we come up with through a very rigorous evaluation and assessment and strategies. And in the latest years, precisely in the sustainable development framework, we've been engaging in more of, um, of an alliance with, between different movements. So we're trying to build solidarity between and across different movements, and we're trying to reflect that into a more complex analysis that we're having. Uh, the challenges that we see now are very um, complex and big, for the world. So we need this dialogue between different movements and that's also reflected in the types of proposal we want to have that is more structural, that is addressing um, the real barrier. So we're not only focusing on, on let us say, the, the main problems that we see, but we're trying to address the root causes. Mm -hmm. And in that sense is that the climate change is one of the most important emergencies that humanity is facing. And it's also threatening the life as we know it in this planet. So this is why it is one of our main priorities. Um, we don't think that the feminist movement in its entirety has the understanding of to involve itself fully. And um, we're trying to bridge also a dialogue within the feminist movement to see how the sexual reproductive health and rights are necessarily linked to climate change, that parity, uh, political participation, economics, justice of women is totally related as well to climate change. So all the demands need also to be put in dialogue into the climate change. And that's what we're doing as well in an international negotiation such as the climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk about the gender action plan that was adopted by countries last COP in Germany and its strengths and weaknesses? So one of the really important things about the gender action plan is, is to understand that it 
as a decision, it didn't necessarily create new mandates, but it was really a reaction to the fact that there's been a lot of work over the last decade and even before so to recognize some of the challenges that, that we see in the negotiations in terms of gender balance and women's participation just as a, uh, as a representation issue, but also um, all a whole host of mandates that had been decided by parties around how gender should be reflected in the operational and reporting of certain bodies and boards around climate finance, around technology transfer and development, and yet there seemed to be quite stilted progress uh, on, and on any of those, even from a procedural level. So we were seeing that even where mandates existed, there were still technical bodies excuse me, producing technical advice that would be gender blind when there was there was clearly mandates for that to be uh, included in it. And so the gender action plan was a reaction to that and how do we enhance implementation of these mandates. So we one thing I talk about in terms of the importance of the gender action plan was that it really felt amongst not all but a majority of parties we had come to a space where we were not negotiating the importance of gender, but we were negotiating how to, how to put action behind the gender mandates in this process. And so it, it did feel like a shift in the kinds of negotiations and processes where we were having to fight for and make the case for why gender should be even included in a decision uh, on climate change. I think that that the moment and what it signified in this real push towards action is one of the important pieces about it. And also because I think that it it's a, um, a really important lightning rod, if you will, now for action. It's a lightning rod for both na you know, national governments, d development agencies, funders to say, okay, we've given ourselves a set of priority areas where we would like to take action and move things forward. It re-emphasizes those mandates that already exist, and it gives people somewhat of a global framework for thinking about how they can be taking action to enhance implementation at national level, to actually invest in projects and programs to uh, ensure women's human rights and representation, for example. So uh, I think that that's the real strength of it is being this 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 shift towards action that, you know, we're only in the second year of it, but hopefully it gives uh, an impetus to really enhance what we have already mandated in the process. Yes, I, I agree with Bridget on... I had the opportunity of being part of the Mexican delegation as a representative of civil society and as um, uh, as a negotiator in the gender action plan, what we saw was that there was an, also a need for a tool that could legitimize um, the type of measures that also allies on the ground are doing. So I think this is a great tool for that. The only thing that I would say, and I mean, Bridget already mentioned the main things, what I would add is that in the follow-up, we would really need to see what is the type of assessment we can make. And uh, we know that gender equality is a long-term process. It's not something that you're going to report um, at the end of two years and assess whether it's useful or not. We know it is useful. We know it is needed. And we know that we need something that is more medium and long-term um, lasting. So what we need to ensure maybe in the, in the next uh, instrument that we come up with is something that is more permanent. We try to do that, but the governments are hesitant. 
as to the demand of work they will have. They know that they're having another battle in the Paris Agreement field. So um, it is a challenge because we know that we want to have the implementation of this, and now that we have the instruments, as Bridget says, it is time to go back to implementation on the ground. And the type of tools that the Secretariat can make and in, on behalf of the UNFCCC, or, but also other technical actors that are there, like even the women's movement and the feminist movement, uh, but also the, the gender units, they need to be more supported and more valued and acknowledged, and they need to have a um, um, bigger play when it comes to implementation. So we're hoping that this type of tools is giving this type of legitimization, I was mm -hmm. saying, to, to really engage in the bigger decisions at the national level. And we're hoping that we will see in the follow-up how this is happening, and if not, how we can support that. And this other issue on the on the follow-up would be crucial to see uh, next year. Great. So you spoke before about the importance of disaggregating climate data um, with respect to gender. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think that this is a consistent need, and it's something that we've used the Gender Action Plan and other spaces to say, okay, we, we want workshops, we want technical advice and support for how to collect and disseminate sex and gender disaggregated data and analysis. And it's, it is certainly language that we push really um, really hard for in different decisions because we find that without the request for that data and analysis, it's not happening necessarily. And and we hear this, and I, I've been in several different regional meetings this year um, with governments who are trying to work and implement policies at national level, but who are also trying to respond to the global mandates that they have now on gender. And I'm, I'm hearing from all of them, and this is not new, um, because of course we know that some of this data does exist, but what they're calling for and, and really desperate for is national contextualized sex and gender desegregated data and analysis, and even more than that, intersectional data and analysis. So, uh, you know, what, what they're finding is that the, there's, there's a lot of data that exists at perhaps the global level, which has been really important for helping to advocate and, and gain an understanding that there are gender differentiated impacts that happen across regions and different communities. But there's a real need now for the mapping that so many people are doing across different sectors and across different um, countries to include um, analysis on gender where it exists. Some countries, and, and maybe Amelia can speak to Mexico, some countries have uh, a broader set of data analysis that they can pull from. But a lot of countries do have statistics um, bureaus and institutions that are doing this work and perhaps not linking together these important issues. And so uh, I think that's a really important critical issue as we've moved into implementation is mm -hmm. just making the right partnerships and marriages between ministries and institutions uh, that have this data that can help support that gender analysis, making sure it's nationally contextualized, that it's intersectional. Um, and then finally, you know, this is actually one of the areas at COP24, when we're talking about the rule book, we would like to see a reference to this within the uh, transparency framework, because we think that this is a really important opportunity for when reporting is happening on national commitments, that, that there is a requirement um, for, or a hook at least, for there to be a collection of sex and gender disaggregated data. I think uh, there is a misunderstanding about 
which entity should be responsible for gathering data. Mm -hmm. Because at the global level, when you're talking to uh, government, the expectation falls under the responsibility of the statistical unit. Whereas from the point of view of a government, the ones who have the data on the sectors and on the impacts are the ones, the institutions that are implementing the policies. And that data exists because when you're implementing a program, you know who's, who your beneficiaries are, you know what is the type of impact you're having because you're ask, actually asking for a budget in terms of those, in those terms every year. So I think this is the same challenge that the 2030 Agenda has. There is a misconception at the global level that the statistical um, units need to deliver all sorts of information at that level of disaggregation mm -hmm. that is outside of their mandate. It would be super extremely expensive to have a statistical unit sending out surveys or census on every topic, on all those questions, disaggregation of all sorts, for the fulfillment of these issues that are not necessarily the, is the population the one who has the data, or to gather all sorts of instruments and surveys that are more economical to, to throw out all this type of data that we need. Whereas at the implementation level, institutions do have this type of data, mm -hmm. and they just, when they go to the national level, they need to aggregate in terms of reports. So we have a mismatch there. When the governments are reporting, they're reporting on the aggregation of the data. And then when we come to the global level, we think, oh, we need the disaggregation. But then those who are working on the ground don't think their, their data is valuable on the one hand. And on the other, when we come to the sophistication of the gender data, but also um, disaggregated by race and by age and uh, all those issues, yes, there is a challenge as well. And I think we as gender experts needs to, need to know more into the detail on how do you support the transportation unit to come up with sex disaggregated data that helps you to understand the patterns of flow of movement and how many persons are you traveling with, what's the time. If the transportation institution cannot even ask you your sex. Mm -hmm. It has no mandate, it has no tools. So there is also this technical obstacle when it comes to climate change, especially in the mitigation field, that we also need to be more creative and be more supportive. And of course, it comes down to the capacity building and the finance that we need mm -hmm. to try to implement. But unless the mandate is there, institutions are not going to take that step. So that's also where it comes in our ass that we, we need that type of disaggregation. But I think also we need to shift the way in which we've been addressing this pro this issue so far. And we need to come up with a broader understanding on the way policy is implemented on the ground and whose concern is that and who's going to gather that, that information that, that may be the institution of the statistical institution, but also maybe it would be falling on the, on the part of the sector and maybe it should fall under the executive mandate. I don't know. There are many ways, and I think this is just a starting point, and the 2030 Agenda and the Paris Agreements are very good starting points to start shifting from our traditional views on data and how we're going to optimize that. Mm -hmm. Looking forward, what are expected outcomes related to gender for the upcoming COP24 in Poland? 
Well, it's a unique cup um, for the kind of standalone gender agenda item, which we don't ever want anything to be standalone when it comes to gender. But um, the gender action plan is in its first year of implementation. It's a two-year action plan. And so there will be informal, the gender is a standing agenda item on the COP. So it will be on the agenda. There will be informal discussions and consultations amongst parties where my my assumption and my expectation is that they'll be sharing what they've been doing to support implementation of the different elements of the gender action plan and looking forward to what needs to happen in 2019. I think that some governments want to renew their commitment to the gender action plan and try to make sure it doesn't lose the elevated space that it's in and, and really declare its importance. But from an advocacy and negotiations perspective, there's also um, looking at the Paris Agreement uh, work program and the, the rule book and implementation guidelines and seeing what are the really important hooks that we need to ensure we have in those guidelines to make sure that the Paris Agreement, nitty-gritty implementation of the Paris Agreement doesn't overlook um, what we have in the mandates and the preamble of the Paris Agreement around gender equality and human rights. And so... I would expect you'll find women's rights advocates, human rights organizations, indigenous rights groups who are going to be working to see and look at the entry points and have been working this whole year to find entry points in the nationally determined contributions, in the transparency framework, the adaptation communications, even the global stock take and seeing how we can make sure language. And as I said before, potentially things like on data collection are included in transparency framework or calls for information, um, we have a certain set of recommendations, for example, that we'll be pushing to see. And then we have a big broader ask, of course, of making sure that the outcomes are actually doing what they should be doing in terms of raising ambition. I agree with Bridget. I would just say that we just need to raise awareness about the relevance of this COP. We're going to come up with um, the tool that is going to detail the implementation of the Paris Agreement. We want it to be ambitious. We wanted to deliver what the humanity expects. So this is why gender equality is part of a bigger discussion about justice, environmental justice, but also social and economic justice. And in that sense, we're in an alliance with uh, different uh, movements and different constituencies to try to come up with an agenda that really reflects what humanity as a whole is needing. And those will be our major asks. So if there is um, a community of Yale students coming, uh, we would uh, really strongly urge them to get in touch with any of those uh, actors like the trade unions, indigenous peoples um, movements, the youth or the women's and gender constituency or the human rights uh, caucus. There are many groups and we're working towards an, an alliance and we're trying to get that rulebook ambitious and at the same time responding to what we need uh, and what we expect that is would be the basis for a sustainable development. So we look forward to hearing from all of you. Thank you. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for taking the time and speaking with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. That does it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Bridget and Amelia for speaking with us. You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Yale Enviro. That's Y-A-L-E-E-N-V-I-R-O.